You're listening to In the Open, a Mental Health America podcast, a space where we explore mental health and navigate the challenges of life through honest and candid conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to In the Open uh, with America and Teresa and a guest today. Our guest today is Allison Zalta. Hello, everyone. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist, and I'm an associate professor at the University of California, Irvine. And I do a lot of research that focuses on trauma and resilience. So I'm really excited to have a chance to talk with you all today. That's really awesome. So last week we did a sleep episode. So it was like, oh, how does trauma affect my sleep? But more ways than just sleep, yeah? Yeah, we, we one of the episodes we did um, was talking about how we may not be able to trust our memories, mm. and our memories are both tied to our physical self and then our like our brain. Uh, <laughs> so, definitely very interested in hearing how science, science based, right? How this ultimately help can help people understand how to navigate how trauma shows up in our lives. So Allison, when you think about trauma and how it affects our brain, can you like give me two snippets of what that looks like? Absolutely. So there are definitely a couple ways that we know trauma affects the brain. One is that people can often have intrusive memories of those events. So and in ways that can feel like they're really here and now. So one of the things that happens with trauma is that we can find that those memories can kind of pop back up on us at any time, and that can be really upsetting and distressing for folks. Um, so that's one way that that we see trauma affecting the brain. Another is that lots of things in the environment can become what we call triggers. So they're reminders of something that was happening in the trauma. And it can be something visual like a trash can. It can be a smell like a barbecue It could be a sound, like a car backfiring, but uh, all of these different stimuli can kind of remind us of what happened perhaps in our trauma, and that kind of sets off those memories and kind of brings that trauma back again as if it were happening in the here and now. Okay, that's really cool, and maybe you can share us like what happens in the brain when that happens, but one thing I also think about when you know, we all have a fight or flight instinct, right? So when you're experiencing a lot of stress, um, uh, when I'm really stressed or when my trauma is coming up and I'm processing it a lot, I just have like brain paralysis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Those concentration difficulties are a big thing that people talk about. It's hard not to get frustrated with yourself because you know you can do normal things. And it's weird because I also feel like this happens when I get very sick. Like it's brain fog. Like people who have COVID have talked about brain fog. But yeah, your your thoughts, your cognition, it kind of just goes out, out of the door. It's like your brain and your body are literally just paralyzed, right? But in and sometimes in a really profound way, you're losing thoughts. Yeah, it's kind of like your brain's trying to do two jobs at once, right? Like it's trying to process this thing that's happened to you in the past and it's kind of cropping up on you and, and kind of being here in the present. And then your brain's trying to do what is actually happening in the present. And these things really compete with each other. 
uh, there's actually some really interesting science about trying to keep people's brains busy um, after they've experienced trauma to try to help them resolve that trauma because of this idea that the brain can really only manage one thing at a time, right? We have a certain cognitive load. And once we hit that, it's hard to do anything else. So I think what you're describing is definitely something that we've we've seen in our research. What what immediately came to mind in, in how you described it and then what Allison said is the conversations we have around um, maybe some of the relational aspects of trauma and like how certain sounds or certain things that are said bring you back. And I, I, I totally can feel that when I'm in an argument or something with my fiance and then he says something and I'm like, my brain who wants to yeah. immediately react to that, but I don't think it's reacting to the X thing. It's reacting to whatever Dude. is from the past, but it cannot. It's just overloaded and doesn't allow for me to be like, yo, hold up hold up just just process this thing a hundred percent i'm checked and I feel, out i'm like what's wrong with my yeah. brain <laughs> you're like checked out because you can't focus yes. on whatever like sometimes it's wild because i can feel like i've lost days and be like what did i even do you know i mean i feel like that's hard too because the brain already forgets a lot of stuff but this is why recovering from trauma is also so hard because you can't keep track of basic tasks like your groceries and you just like I'll just miss purchasing things things that people think oh you should be able to do normal stuff (laughs) like follow a list and purchase your grocery items or this affects my work because I'm like why can I not answer this stupid email you know or just do these things that feel very like they should be easy to do yeah and i think Um, you're touching on something really important Teresa. and it's that it's hard for other people to recognize how trauma affects people because it's such a an internal process at times and because other people haven't experienced the same thing as you they have a really hard time knowing why why something might be so difficult for a person and i think um you know, we often talk about how it's really important also to talk with loved ones uh, of folks who experience trauma because they're seeing it through one lens, but the person who has had that trauma is seeing it through a t- completely different lens sometimes, um, especially if they're feeling triggered. So um, I think I think that's a really great point. I often wonder too if there is a anthropological explanation to this, right? So like when you experience something that really affects your safety, when we were, when we were in the caves or when we were attacked by lions, like mm-hmm. I better remember that stuff. That that work that has to happen to protect your body and the way that your brain responds in order to protect yourself from future issues. It doesn't. It it's so much harder in the context of this world today because everything moves so fast and everybody wants you to just get over it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. A lot of our theories rely on exactly what you're talking about, which is that when people, the whole idea is that when bad things happen, we want to remember those things to keep us safe, right? And so we are trying to encode everything that's related to that event in order because all of those things might indicate danger. I'm actually curious then about a little bit of your research. Um which I think really dives into structures of brains. And uh, Merrick and I are always like, we're not neuroscientists. 
Absolutely. Yes. Allison is actually a neuroscientist. I do have a study looking at brains. It's it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What does that even mean? I know. Yeah. So what we know is that there are different parts of the brain that encode memories. We know there are different parts of the brain that process emotions. And we know there are different parts of the brain that do things like we call it executive functioning. So it's, it's essentially your brain's ability to kind of tamp down on those emotions and kind of override those emotions using logic. Because you can you can remember kind of sometimes where you start to get really upset about something, right? And yeah. you kind of talk yourself out of it because you realize like, oh, yeah. maybe it's not actually bad or maybe it's not as, as bad of a problem as I, I think it is. So that's that frontal part of your brain that's kind of helping to talk you down. And what we know about trauma is that it doesn't just exist in one part of the brain. It's kind of how these different parts of the brain talk to each other. So when that kind of emotion processing part of the brain gets sets off by something that scares us or that makes us anxious or um, that reminds us of trauma, then how well does that part of the brain talk to the front parts of our brain that do that job of executive control? And we know that how well those two parts are actually talking to each other has a lot to do with how people experience symptoms after trauma. Well, just tell me more then. So we talk a lot about people have experienced a lot of, a lot of trauma. It's, I feel like with trauma, there are a couple of incidences, you know, your brain has a a change that happens right after something big, like a burglary or an attack. But then we also have a lot of people who experience um, trauma after trauma and trauma after trauma, right? Um, So is there a difference in the way the brain, like what happens then? That's a great question. I don't know that we fully know the answer to that, but we do know that trauma load, so what you're talking about is that kind of repeat exposure. We know that 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 the higher that trauma load, the more likely it is that your brain's going to be affected by trauma. And it makes sense because again, your brain is trying to learn to keep you safe, and the more evidence you have to support this idea that the world is dangerous or that you're you're not able to be safe, the more that that your brain is going to take in and kind of process that information. And so we think of it as not necessarily being kind of um, a different process, but it might be more extreme in those who have kind of that repeated exposure to trauma. I have thoughts. Uh, Everything you say makes me think about different aspects of the conversations we've had thus far. Um, The one that really sticks out for me is how memories have been – an issue like both Teresa and I have explored how certain aspects of my early childhood gone. I don't, I don't remember them. It's just like a blank little box. And it's probably because of the transition of my coming um, from Bolivia when I was a little girl and then coming here, like no idea of what happened prior. And then Teresa talks a little bit about how her memories come and go, but in, in the way that you're describing it's so innately tied together, but for the person that's living it in different moments, how are we able to make a little bit more sense of maybe the disconnect or it it might be a disconnect or is it the connection that your brain just completely gets overloaded that it does certainly shut down different parts? 
Yeah, it's my brain broken. Like, did it just break? Is that why? Your brain is not <laughs> broken. I, I got it. <laughs> your brain is not broken, I promise. Yeah, your brain is trying to do its best job in keeping you safe. And so what it's really trying to do is capture as much information in those moments where we really think we're at risk and try to save all that information as much as possible and then remind you of it, you know, at times that it thinks you're going to be in danger. Um, that's a really adaptive function. The problem, like you said, um, in today's world is that we can, we end up, so our brain tends to overgeneralize. So it takes the information and then it, because it wants so desperately to keep you safe, it extends to all kinds of things that are actually safe in the world, but that your brain now perceives as potentially dangerous because it wants to keep you alive as long as possible. So we find that um, it's that really, that extension to objects or sounds or smells or all those things that are that are kind of objectively safe, but that your brain now thinks is dangerous. That's, you know, one of the things that we definitely see happening after trauma that can affect people. So you talk about the communication that occurs between different parts of the brain, the part that manages my executive functioning, the memory and the emotion part. So in a traumatic experience, does that whole part of the brain light up? Like it, it's going... Yeah, I think what you're describing. So um, now I'm going to get really science on you. Yeah, um, yeah. So emotional processing theory says that, you know, we have these fear structures in the brain. And these fear structures have different parts of them. They have the stimuli, so, you know, sight, smells, etc. Our responses during those events and then the meaning that we make out of those events. So, I'm incompetent or the world's dangerous, right? So like what is the meaning we took away from that traumatic event? And all of those different pieces, those stimuli, those responses, those meaning elements are all mapped down into what's called a fear network. And the idea is that when any one piece of that fear network gets set off, the whole thing lights up. So that's the whole concept of the theory is that if any one little piece of that, even if it's just a reminder of something that, again, is objectively safe now in your world because it's connected to this memory of this event is going to set off that entire fear network. And so I think your your personal experience is absolutely mapping onto kind of one of the prominent theories that we have about kind of how trauma works and how people process trauma. And you can actually see that in a scan is that what people are studying? That's a little trickier, I will say. So, you know, the, the translation from the theory to the brain is, is always really hard. But we do know that um, – so I think it's really hard to connect those real-world experiences to what we see lighting up in a scanner, uh -huh. right? Because when we do these scientific experiments, we're always doing it within the lab, right? Yeah. So it's, it's really hard to make that connection. But what we do know is, for example, that – when we show people, let's say, fearful images, people who have had a hard time after trauma, their brains are going to light up differently when they see those fearful images. Does it light up more or less? Because I have an, another question about that. Do you know? Well, so the the emotion processing part lights up more, okay. right? So the fear kind of reaction and that frontal executive control part lights up less. 
So the idea is that that kind of primal brain, the the part of you that kind of is managing that emotional response is strong, but that kind of like logic part of your brain um, is having a harder time kicking in and tamping down on that. Does that kind of make sense? It does not only make sense, but we talk so much about when we're in a traumatic space and then we get into a fight with our partner, why we become so emotionally reactive and it's not hard not to get into a worse fight, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I hope that people here are hearing that your brain and it's the way that it's learned to live and function has done this by design, that it's not something you always have a lot of control over and it takes practice. Yeah. There's so much in psychology too that puts the onus of control on the on us to do these in what feels like enormous, miraculous feats of emotional control. And I'm like, okay, let me just pause for one second and learn how to de-light up my emotional brain and (laughs) re-light up my executive functioning brain because I just dealt with a lifelong abuse or whatever. And that's really, really hard. Yeah. I I think you're you're spot on. And, um, you know, we hope that that's some of what we're helping to do through our therapies and the things that really work um, and helping people recover from trauma. But also everyone is different, right? And I think it is really important to know that it's – I hear a lot of what you were saying earlier, Teresa, that kind of get over it. It's been a while, get over it. And that always drives me a little crazy because yeah. – <laughs> honestly. Um, because we know it's not that simple, right? It it becomes kind of baked into us. And so it's it's not as simple as something that it's like, oh, I don't like this jacket. I'm just going to like get rid of it, you know, and, and throw it away. It's something that's now like ingrained in inside of us. And it's it's not a switch we get to flip. You know what it makes me think of too, Allison? I um you wouldn't know this, but Teresa of course doesn't. Maybe our listeners like I oftentimes get into this space because my brain is much more logical and analytical. It's harder for me to tap into the emotional side of things. I can override the emotion and just like chomp it down and be like, "No. Function, executive function." <laughs> right? And which in the same way is like a detriment because there are times when we have to really allow ourselves to have and be the emotional selves that we are. So there's so much in what you're sharing that just resonates around the the connection between all of this, you know? Well, are there people who who do that, who who, as a reaction to their trauma get locked into the executive functioning part? Absolutely. Well, I'd say, so what we think of it is as emotional numbing. So there definitely are some folks and it doesn't, I will say it doesn't have to be like one or the other. People can experience both where there are times when they feel like their emotions are completely out of control and times when they feel completely numb, like they can't feel anything. Mm -hmm. So there are definitely times when the brain essentially says like, I can't even handle this. The only way is total system shutdown. So (laughs) it's like power off. Yeah. (laughs) And so we see folks who feel completely emotionally numb, who have a hard time connecting with other people because they can't access those emotions. They have a hard time feeling though they might not feel sad or angry or afraid all the time, but they have a hard time experiencing positive emotions because everything is so 
just blunted as a as a protective mechanism, right? Like as a way to not feel those extreme negative emotions. They also then that kind of shut off the ability to experience those positive emotions and feelings of connection. Um, so we definitely see that. So, okay, I don't know if this is a silly question, but when I think of my brain as working really hard and we we know about neurotransmitters and they're fighting, you're talking about the communication from one side of the brain to another and things shut off. I always envision my brain as working. And do the neurons themselves get worn out? Because we know so little about the brain, right? But for people with mental illnesses, I think we want desperately to understand how the structure itself looks as a way to make sense of how to heal myself. Mm -hmm. Because I know if I have a muscle ache or if I have a knot, I have to work that out or I have to stretch. But what's the version of that for my brain? I think like, oh, I'm working it really hard. My brain cells are worn out. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that your brain cells will stop working. Yeah, you know, like I don't feel like we have in society a concept for understanding what actually happens. Yeah. So your body does have these feedback loops. So your neurons won't stop working. Um, So that's, that's a good thing. But we do have these feedback loops. So if you think about something like cortisol is a stress hormone, right? It goes off in the body when you're stressed. I think a lot of people have probably heard of that. But what starts to happen is if there's kind of a constant flood of cortisol, your body thinks like, uh-oh, I'm not supposed to have that much, right? Something must be kind of wrong. And so I'm going to stop kind of producing as much in order to recompensate myself. And that's how people can actually get into a blunted state where their body, by virtue of being so flooded, right, in this feedback loop is saying like, uh-oh, too much, we got to shut it down. And so that can actually lead to a blunted state where people aren't having that kind of normal kind of production because of that feedback loop. So I think what you're you're describing makes sense. And I, I think it it's happening in different levels of the body. So that's at the hormonal level. There are other ways I think in which our body is has these kind of feedback mechanisms and protective mechanisms that are kind of try to kick in to try to help us out, but that can also cause problems long-term. Whoa, this reminds me of cutting. Mm-hmm. Right. And, or other addictions. Mm-hmm. Like I was just thinking about that. I mean, the kids I work with who cut want to feel something different or feel that cortisone, the adrenaline, the rush. Mm -hmm. Is that tied to what you're talking about? Definitely. You know, we see, for example, that desire to just, again, numb. So if that, if that kind of emotional part is just going nuts, it's a horrible feeling. And so people say, I need to shut that down in any way I can. Some people do that cognitively, right? That can, all the way out at the extreme, that could be dissociation, right? Where you just totally, some people are completely amnestic for parts of their trauma and they don't remember them because literally it's just, again, my brain has to separate from that because it's too much. Other people seek external ways of shutting off their brains, right? So using substances, things like that, you know, self-harm that it's a way to try to, you know, gain some sense of kind of control over that part uh, that's just mm. – you You feel like it's kind of 
I have no control over this thing, right? It's kind of constantly here in, in, in my thoughts and I need a way to turn it off. So I think you're right. People turn to all kinds of ways of trying to kind of control that part of their brain um, because of trauma. Yeah. Allison, do you do you find that in, in your work and, and some of the discussion that we've had today, um, you mentioned at the earlier part, the way that your brain will work over time is if you have a higher load of trauma in your life. So if that's something that starts early on in childhood and you're kind of bombarded with it, right, which makes me think of a range of different things tied to our well-being, then there is a higher likelihood that that trauma, if not addressed in some therapeutic way, can build up and impact how then as an adult, you know, Teresa and I are in our 40s, so there's a lot more, you know, our brains are working slower now. Uh, <laughs> so I'm in that club with you. <laughs> I'm wondering if there are ties to that, right? And because many of our, our listeners are also young folk, wondering what they can do to really think about getting themselves in a better place of addressing things earlier on so that they're not impacted by their trauma as much later on. Yeah, I think that's so important. A lot of the folks I've worked with have really tried to muscle through on their own. And it's not until a lot of years have gone by and a lot of problems have cropped up in their lives that they finally realize that, you know, hey, I actually need some help with this. And so I do think that that kind of early kind of ways to kind of intervene are so, so, so important. In the really immediate aftermath of trauma, I always tell folks, you know, social support is extremely important, kind of remaintaining your routine, right? All of those things are really, really important in the aftermath of trauma. But then as time goes on, I also think it's important, you know, if you notice some of those symptoms, those memories cropping up, that things are kind of reminding you of the trauma, even when you don't want them to, that you go get professional help. And we have some really great treatments, particularly several psychotherapies that have been shown to be really effective in treating trauma. So I am a big proponent, not surprisingly as a clinical psychologist, I'm a big proponent in going and talking with someone. Uh, and I know that's really scary. So a lot of people say like, why would I want to talk about that thing? That's the worst thing that has ever happened to me in my whole life. Why in the world would I ever want to go talk about that some more? And I think that that very understandable kind of reaction is what prevents a lot of people from seeking help. And what we know is that it's kind of through that talking through that people are able to kind of get through to the other side and find a place where they're really able to cope. So, you know, I know it's hard. It's really scary. And it takes a lot of bravery, honestly, a lot of courage to, to get that help. What I think is interesting too, as you talk about the brain, cortisone, the body, is that when we talk about therapy as well, so much ends up being focused on talking through the narrative, talking through the therapy. But some of the best approaches in trauma recovery have taken a whole body approach. Mm. And I don't think that's talked about enough, right? Because I mean, what you're sharing here is that my body in response to my trauma is setting off these things that communicate everywhere. And I'm not the processing isn't just to talk about what happened. I have to do that 
in order to also learn to not be stuck in this stress mode constantly. Like Mm -hmm. if I had started therapy, like let's say I was lucky and I started therapy even at 15 as opposed to like eight when the trauma started, even then I would not have 20 more years of living in a, in a, in a stress response and, and basically living, you know, 30 years training my body, how to be constantly stressed. Is that, do you see that too? Yeah, I think you're right that that whole body approach is really important and that we know so many things affect how you respond to trauma. You were talking earlier about sleep. I do a lot of research actually with sleep. Sleep is so critical. Nutrition, exercise, right? Like all of those things, when you are depleted in one way, including your physical body, it is so much easier for trauma to crop up and to kind of interfere. So if there's if you have chronic pain, we see a lot of people who have medical conditions along with their traumas and those really impact how they react to traumas. So it's not just kind of that emotional reaction and kind of that side of it. I I think you're right. It it really is kind of a whole body that's contributing here and and I think taking care of your your body in all of the ways that we know are important kind of helps to buffer you against kind of those reactions as well. I think um, in the just the conversation we were having around sleep earlier, Allison, with Teresa in our previous session, one of the things that we talked about is getting to a place where your body is able to relax enough, right? And, and Teresa shared around her her emotions tied to safety and being able to feel safe enough that she could rest. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not only your brain, but your actual body, right? And what you're sharing, I think it's so relevant where for me, I know there are different times in my life where I will experience like a physical touch and I'm like, oh, don't, don't touch me. (laughs) Um, And it, it is. And if you're not working really together together to address the emotional side of it, the physical side of it, you forget. So like in the same way that you're trying to like strength train and like get, you know, muscles in your arms, you got to do your back because you can't have all these big arms without strong back. So I, I really think that that's important in in tying all of, all of this together. And and all the work that you're doing, I think, helps in many ways validate like all of the conversations we've been having and the ones that we're going to have with others tied to some body work and, and what people can do in that space. It's so it's so good that that you're here with us. Yeah. And what you were I will say that as you were talking, there was also a little piece of me that was like, oh my gosh, people must feel so overwhelmed. It's like, okay, so you're saying now I've got to like I'm already struggling and now I've got to eat right and get some exercise and go to therapy and take a walk. And, (laughs) you know, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot, a lot. And, um, you know, I really encourage people to start with like, whatever step is right for you. The good news is the fact that all of these things are related means that anything that you do to work on yourself is going to help whether it's food, exercise, therapy, right? Any of any of those things we think is going to be helpful, right? So you can start wherever is right for you and and trying to figure out how do I how am I going to best cope? And so I I get that it starts to feel like really scary and overwhelming, but 
I also think it means that there's not just one right way to cope. Yeah, often all we can do is breathe. Mm -hmm. I mean, learning how to breathe correctly as a way to calm your brain and recalibrate or just not get caught up in whatever all the expectations that you have on how to live or how you're supposed to get better, even in small moments. Absolutely. You mentioned therapies, and I'm going to close with just asking you that. So when you refer people to, when you tell people to go to find a therapist who practices something who's really good with trauma, what are some of your favorite recommendations for people to start looking up information about? Yeah, absolutely. We There are definitely some therapies that we um, have been shown through research to be frontline treatments. I would definitely look for a therapist who's doing one of those frontline treatments. So for example, we know that prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy and trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy are all therapies that have been shown to be effective uh, in helping to treat trauma. And there's lots of great information on professional websites about treatment recommendations. I just want to thank you, Allison. Um, I think all the information that you shared is phenomenal. So we're going to tap you again for um, future episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I would love to be back. You yeah. want to do a plug to your team or your work? Like how do people learn about who you are? And Oh, sure. You yeah. Your, your folks are welcome to go to my uh, website. I have a website at the University of California, Irvine. And you can learn about our research. We have a lab website where we describe all the different research projects that we're doing. We're doing a study right now actually on military families to understand how parents who experience trauma, how that affects their families and particularly their kids. And so we realize that trauma is not something that's just experienced by one person. It's often experienced by a whole family. And so um, that's one of the things that we're studying right now. But we're able to recruit families from across the whole country for this study. You can participate from home. So um, we'd love for folks to reach out to us and uh, if they're interested. But yeah, I think just in closing thoughts too, uh, in addition to talking about my own work, I just want to kind of share with folks that you're not alone, right? I think I think that's so important. I think people feel so alone and isolated in their trauma. I really admire you both for sharing your own personal experiences. And I think what you're doing here is so important for helping people to realize that what they're experiencing is not is not just them and, and it's not that they have other people around them who understand and who are experiencing similar things. So yeah. I'm really grateful to you both. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you, Allison, for joining us. Of course. Everyone, keep on fighting in the open. Thank you all. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.